Welcome to Unbalanced Views of History. I'm Brian, uh, along with uh, Mike. We're going to just have a long rambling kind of conversation about peasant fairy tales or fables, uh, in, mostly in France. Uh, we talk a bit about Germany. We had a long conversation and we just sort of went all over the place. It's completely unscripted. It's a little different than what we normally do. We will be back very soon with uh, the third installment of A Pox Upon Your House, The Smallpox and the American Revolution Story. But in the meantime, this is, uh, I don't know, I thought this was kind of an interesting conversation. I hope you like it. Uh, if not, this is obviously very different from what we normally do, but if you like it, great. If not, uh, you know, go ahead and skip it uh, and come back in a couple days for the uh, Pox Upon Your House Part 3. Uh, as always, we are really grateful for everybody listening to us. I see uh, our listener numbers are, are growing a bit and that's great if you like what we're doing please tell your friends we really want to grow this show um and in the meantime i hope you enjoy this it's uh it's different from what we normally do it kind of goes a little bit all over the place but i hope you enjoy it so oh god we come to my third story do here. we have time for third i know it's quick and late is this a quick one we're doing third story like 15 we're doing third quick. story no no, shut your mouth. You, t- you deal with it. Deal with your. Do go deal with your uh, your <laughs> passive income landlords later. Oh, great. So I want to turn our attention back to pre-industrial France for just a minute, or for a few minutes, the France of like the 17th century and earlier. And I want to talk about the peasantry in the, the like the so-called like Age of Enlightenment. So one of the most difficult things to do as a historian, just like just a little inside baseball or whatever is that is to try and get at the lives of the people that I care the most about, like the working regular folks who, especially when you get far enough back that never really left a lot of records behind. Right. So it's really hard to kind of find their stories, which is why a lot of history is like the, is like the great man stuff. It's the people that left records. Um, People, of course, who leave their own records are problematic as well because they, the people that, the sort of people that kind of leave their own uh-huh. records behind Which... are usually aware of their historical importance or they, they think of themselves as historically important. So they leave records and they want to leave a legacy. So a lot of times those records like downplay the bad stuff they did, fluff up the good, uh, however, as they saw it. Which is sure. part of the reason why Columbus is such a monster because like oh, the, uh, the records we have in his own hand describe monstrous acts and like that's him sugarcoating things. Right. Him like why he... bragging about cutting children's hands off and hanging them around their necks until they die. Is yes. him like I'm, I'm sure that's why bragging about things he thinks are good. Just a so, like he's not telling you um, the whole, Yeah. He's not telling you the horrible stuff. Like the Nazis knew that they were doing awful stuff, which is why they didn't keep records of it. They're well, like no man. I, I I tend to think those crazy bastards like think about it. Like if you're doing horrible things, you pretty much, and you know you're doing a horrible thing, the only reason you would do that horrible thing is because you're doing it for such a noble cause, or at least in your mind, right? As a group, as an individual, you could be a psychopath, but as a group, as a large army or what have you, if you're doing these horrendous, horrendous things, like, and I've seen, man, especially with the Nazis. There's bastards up on the roof pouring the pills, the capsules into the chimney so it kills everyone in the houses, you know. Like, if you're you're doing that, it's got to be something. You're absolutely misled and brainwashed from a young individual 
to to become that for a group to become that monstrosity of of a of a of a of a, of a society or or an army or whatever. You know what I mean? It's, um, it's just very strange I, to me. Yeah, I mean that's what most people think, but the reality is that's what's so terrifying about this. It's the thing most people don't want to think about is that like is the how easily uh people will do horrible things um in mundane ways. It's almost uh, like how easily people can yeah. And also if it's if if it's accepted by a large group, it's almost makes it okay no matter how horrible it might be. So if there's if, well yeah, I mean it, it certainly I think it changes people's calculus. Like peer pressure is not, you know, it's not a fake thing. Look here. Human beings are really easily manipulated. Um, yeah. that's something we don't like to think about, but like we are easily manipulated. Yeah. I mean, like incredibly so. And, um, I mean, if, if we weren't advertising wouldn't work. Correct. You, you know what I mean? Like we're, we're easily manipulated. So it's like, I was telling, uh, I was telling, telling the guy the other day, I said, you know, I said, you know, have you ever seen uh, McDonald's that has one of those uh, benches out front and part of the bench is Ronald McDonald. So like, you know, your kid can like take a picture mm-hmm. next to, I don't know, like burger man or whatever. <laughs> um, creep. Have you ever seen these? Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen these though? Yeah. Yeah. So, so here's a funny thing about that. That seems pretty mundane. Just seems like, uh, you know, a cheap way to advertise or whatever. But do you know why those exist? Like the actual reason for those, those benches? Uh, no, I do not. They're called hostile architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're basically to prevent homeless people from being able to sleep on them. So ah. they put Ronald McDonald on there to prevent there being enough space for a homeless person to sleep. So, Smart. so they are monuments to cruelty. You know what I mean? They're just like, gee, really sucks that you are down on your luck, but you can't sleep here. And I mean, and again, I know, like, I understand the business owners. Like, I don't want a homeless person sleeping in front of my business. I, I understand that. But also like, nobody's choosing that like you know they're doing it out of necessity yeah and when you eliminate all the places you criminalize the like conditions that aren't necessarily their fault so anyway regardless of all that Mm -hmm. but like this kind of stuff like that's honestly if i just came up to like a random person and i said hey we should design park benches that are specifically created so homeless people like are not able to sleep on them. And on top of that, we could make it an advertisement for our business. And most reasonable people would look at you and be like, that is some like psychopath. That's like a, a psychopath thing to think about. You know what I mean? Like that is a psychopath thing. I don't know. To, I, I disagree well, with you. Like to just come up with, I, th- I think that's psychopath. So, that's psychopath shit. I, I mean, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, it, no, it is. It's, it's it's would be like designing a uh, like a bear trap that they get caught in or something. I mean, look, you're just saying something simple. Especially, it's probably designed right in in specific areas where there's a lot of homeless people. You know, sure. or whatever, or or even even better, kind of those border areas, right, where the business owners like God, I just don't want homeless people right here in front of my place, right. I think that's sure. That's not but, psychopathic or anything like that for him to do that. No, he's not. I'm not saying he's saying I'm not down saying, the road or anything. He's I'm just not saying, saying the business. I'm not saying the business owner that says I don't want homeless people in front of my place is psychopathic. Uh-huh. I'm saying the person who said Does, we need to design a bench 
Well, that, that person is, is impossible to sleep on, yes. but can also advertise our business and seem charming and cute and quirky and whatever, but also make damn sure a homeless person can't sleep on it. That's a highly that paid. Some, that's a highly paid advertising marketer person. I don't care if they're highly paid. I don't care what they are. That is psychopath shit. Like the to think like this is a thing. Like that is a psychopath. It is, you know, lacking empathy for other human beings. True. That is what a psych that's what it means to be a psychopath. Yep. Lacking empathy for other human beings. That is definitionally what the person who said this is the thing we need to create. Well that is psychopath. They also they also might be a person that goes out and do- donates heavily to homeless shelters and such, but they were just simply trying to design something that would make them money, right? Why are you creating this? You, that, but that doesn't make them money. It It, it is a, a mundane feature that they've decided to make. I would cruel. I would bet you that the person, the, the, I don't know if they, you know how people design certain little things and then they, they get mass credit for them. And McDonald's is one of those private places where someone owns a very piece of like, I can't remember. I watched the movie. I'm sure you've seen it founder okay no it's about the oh, about ray crock great about ray crock yeah. yeah and kind of how the mcdonald's yeah, he all was... started and stuff like that yeah how he he like screwed over the mcdonald's mm-hmm. brothers yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and how um you know so psychopath shit yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah he was like a cutthroat fucking you know, motherfucker it's it, it, that's what i mean that's psychopath shit though i mean we we <sighs> I don't, but it's not celebrate. It's not something to be celebrated. I, I, like it is psychopath stuff. It is. I mean, it is I lacking I empathy just, for other human beings. It's, it's psychopath. It's not because it's not empathy for other humans. It's business. It's nothing personal. I, to okay, business. then, then, then business is psychopathic. But that's not the case. Business isn't necessarily psychopathic. That that I need to have a McDonald's in every on every corner. That is psychopathic. And like I need to cut everybody out. And and screw over everybody in the process. It's greedy. So that I can make the most money. It's greedy. No, yes, no I question. understand. Gre- greedy is one word, but it is specifically lacking in empathy for other human beings. It is psychopathic. It is a psych. It is psychopath test one hundred and one. I mean that is that is like There's a failure one, of the psychopath listen, test. There is not one business school around in this country, and they all use this as an example. None of them would describe it as psychopathic or him as psychopathic. That doesn't mean that they're, that doesn't mean it isn't. I mean, we treat, we treat treat economics as if it's a a real field, but it's not. I mean, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, we treat economics as if it's a hard science, but it's not, it's a speculative, it's a speculative uh, art of, if anything. So it's, it's a social science at best. And so, I mean, that doesn't mean anything. Just because there are flaws in our society doesn't mean that that justifies the thing being wrong. In okay, so to again, I I hate always going to Nazis, but it's like it's the the easiest example to sort of talk about. But like it's the extreme that you just because like hold on, just because every business school teaches things that way, every, and I'm not saying that every, like school, every school in Nazi correct. Germany taught things in a way that we would find psychopathic. Uh, well, that's just that's uh, but it was fine for them. You're talking it's about different though. topics. It's not. It's a lack of empathy for other human beings in both cases. But so it's a business, not a human being, right? I mean, that's the way you, you have to look at it. 
So no, you don't have to look at it that way. That's your you. The fact that you think that you have to look at it that way is 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 evidence that you've been propagandized. No, because that is not the only not way to look at propaganda. it. Business, it's hold business. on, hold on, hold on. Business has existed. The commerce has existed for time immemorial. Mm-hmm. Capitalism has only existed for a couple hundred years, and and even capitalism, capitalism has served a purpose, no question. But the consolidation of capitalism and the fact that it rewards the most psychopathic thinkers within the system is has proven itself to be a flaw, a a, a fatal flaw. It is we we are you know people. Uh, it doesn't matter. This is I can't I can't get into all this. But like, um, the the idea that you would at McDonald's create a bench. So that homeless people couldn't sleep on as McDonald's, not a powerless individual who can't do anything about the homeless problem, but, but a corporation with billions of dollars who could, in fact, put the resources that you put into that bench uh-huh. into cleaning up the areas where the bench goes but and, and to build housing. Around. I mean, I'm not, let me ask not, you this. It shouldn't, that's not the way that it should work. But what I'm saying is, like, that is psychopathic. Before you call it psychopathic, let me run this by you. Let's just say that person is thinking big picture, and they have more information at hand, and they say, we can do this. We can design this bench, which would solve your problem, Mr. Owner. It would actually do two things. It would draw more people, and it would help business-wise. It would solve your problem about the homeless people. As well, what if we start a fund? Where we contribute X amount of dollars every year. Is that what happened? Do you no, no, know? Is that what happened? Do you know if it happened? Yeah, I do know. I do uh, actually. Know. Okay, well, tell me. Did it happen? No, it didn't happen. <laughs> well, no, well, I don't know happen. if I believe your story, but that, that is not a thing happened. that McDonald's does. Nothing um, happened. Hold on. Nothing hold happened. On. Let, me, let, me, let, me just, let me just do a little research. I'm getting a beer. You, okay. you look it up. So, so uh, specifically yeah. around the communities that they serve, there is the Ronald McDonald House Charities Program. Oh, my God. And hold on, hold on. The McDonald's Hacer National Scholarships. Um, there's um, they, are, they are involved in youth sports. So local you're going to tell me about the corporation's tax write-offs. That's what you're telling I mean, me? It's the same thing. What, what the reason they do it isn't the important thing. It's that they do it, and I'm just saying. Maybe, this is not about. And, and this listen, is about that could have come into the equation. She could have been saying, "Hey, listen, guys, we're getting this bench. It's solving your homeless problem. It's beautiful. It's drawing in business." Here's a question. And then we're also going to save your tax dollars too. We're going to help you zero out on your taxes because we're going to put this fund that's going to help these homeless people. That way. We don't look like scumbags. We're helping homeless people. We're saving sacks. We're selling cheeseburgers. It's a win-win. But you can nitpick and take one little piece and say, look at this bench and how it hurts homeless people and make a story out of it. But I'm just saying there's a much larger picture. And I think that um, I'm peeling the onion here as we're talking, but I'm seeing a lot of really positive things. Of course you are, because you are because you think they're doing charity, charitable work as a corporation is somehow uh, like somehow is a good thing where, where if they're the money that they save on taxes that they use on their charitable foundations, which by the way, 
McDon- Ronald McDonald House, you know, every McDonald's you go to has the little little donate thing there. Uh-huh. They take all those donations and then they get the tax write off for them. You know, wonderful, um, wonderful. So, oh, that's yeah, no, good for them. They they yeah, take your tax write off when you put money in. Of course, it's good okay, for them. That's that's and, good as long as it's for a charity. It's going and then they good, control, good but then it's a charity they control, and so they make sure to pay their board members very well on that charity, and they get to control. They get to say, this is the stuff that we have decided we're going to spend money on, and this is the stuff we're not going to spend money on. And that's as opposed right. to... That's their right to do. But that's not the way it should... <laughs> not the way it should be. Uh, it's not the way it should be. People shouldn't have to... Like, I mean, again, I, this is not to say that Ronald McDonald House doesn't do great things. It does. It does great things. Okay. But, but we don't need... But we shouldn't have to rely on the generosity of whoever goes to McDonald's dropping a quarter in the in the slot every time they buy a cheeseburger. I'm with you. I'm with you, brother. In order I'm to solve you. the problems that hey. that their taxes would solve, because you know if what? they paid the taxes and didn't pay the board, that money would go farther. If we could just convince Congress to open up the Area 51 books, we can solve homelessness. We can solve hunger, world hunger. We can solve all these problems. We can solve the illnesses in the world. We can we are, solve here. All we are. These this issues. is you. This is this is what I said about you pursuing unobtainium. <laughs> I'm <laughs> always. Right. I, so, hey, I'm a shit with for this the in mind, the Mike. With all yes, these yes. things in mind, okay. <laughs> it is my point is that none of this stuff. It is hard to understand in history the experiences of common people. Because they rarely left records behind. So it is a challenge to get to their experiences of you know, the experiences of the common folk of, of, of old. Correct. So with that in mind, I want to pass on an old, old tale. And I want to actually wanted to really spend a little time sort of digging into it because I think it's pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's an old tale that was told by the say, let's say the unenlightened folk of Enlightenment uh-huh. France. Right? Okay. All right. It was told by peasants in cottages sitting around the fire on cold winter evenings. It's a story that was that spread far and wide, shared in, you know, basically the same format. But like like every story, you add your own flourishes, your own little details. But generally speaking, the story is the same, right? You, you know how that goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a story that's t- passed down generation after generation. And in fact, we, we from the, the little bit of, of, of re- the few records that we do have, we can actually say this is a story that like, for at least several hundred years, changed very little in France. Um, it's pretty wild, actually. Like, I mean, this is kind of common, but like, it's wild that we can sort of trace to some degree um, references by rich people to the story for you know hundreds of years, popping up rarely but periodically, and the story's all like the same elements, kind of always the same. Okay, so surely this story, this is a common folk story, tells us something about the people who told the tale. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. we should be able to, to deduce something about those people from reading some of the stories that they told. Yes. Yep. Do you agree? Yep. OK. Yeah. So I actually have this book. I'm going to read. This is a long story. It's one that will sound familiar, but it'll sound different, too. So I want to read the whole thing oh. and then uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. OK. All righty. All right. Once a little girl was told by her mother to bring some bread and milk to her grandmother. As the girl Uh-oh. was walking, hold on, the big bad wolf. I know it wow. already. I know it already. Mm. This is a good one. 
but you don't. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. 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 Go ahead. I mean, you're you're not wrong, but okay. you don't know the story. All right. All right. So once a little girl was told by her mother to bring some okay. bread and milk to her grandmother. Okay. As the girl was walking through the forest, a wolf came up to her and asked where she was going. To grandmother's house, she replied. Which path are you taking? The path of the pins or the path of the needles? He asked. Path of the needles. So the wolf. Can I ask you a quick question? Can I have a quick quick question? The wolf. Are we talking Jack Nicholson wolf? Or are we talking last werewolf in London wolf, where he's already transformed into the wolf? Like Nicholson wolf prior to transforming into the wolf? So, okay. So man wolf, like a werewolf. Or is it an actual so, wolf, wolf? Okay, so I'm I'm going to be honest here and say that, uh, to my knowledge, and I and I don't know for sure because you know most stories have roots older than the the story that's written, right? Um, <clears throat> but to my knowledge, the very first werewolf story mm-hmm. that I'm aware of is Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Okay. Okay. And this is a, the story that I'm reading is well before that. Okay. So the idea of the werewolf, to my knowledge, originates with um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I don't think that there is. And again, obviously, that's not like a, a werewolf story specifically, mm-hmm. but it is. It's a, a story about the transformation from man to beast, right? Um, so in this story, at this point, is it a man or is it a beast? It is uh, at this point in the story, we're talking about a wolf, the beast. We're talking about a beast. We're talking about an actual wolf okay. who is for I, the, for the purpose Perfect. of the story, anthropomorphic enough to talk. Okay. I got you. Okay. That's all I need to know. So it's, it's like the wolf from that movie. There's a string of movies um, with uh, uh, what's his, the, the guy that did the Batman um, and uh, what were they called? Twilight. Oh, the Twilight. Twilight. Okay. Sure. I mean, you ever see the Twilight? No, I've, ne- I've never seen them. But um, oh, it's exactly like this. You got to watch. Okay, so here's the thing. So yeah, so like, let's just you know, it's just a regular old wolf who also talks. Okay, okay. Because again, gotcha. for the purpose for the purpose Perfect. of the narrative, it's a yep. little fantasy element. Okay, going down, going down pins and needles. right. So she's taking the path of needles. So the okay, she goes, she needles. goes needles. So the wolf took the path of the pins, and arrived first at the house. Peter. He killed grandmother, <gasps> poured her blood into a bottle, oh. and sliced her flesh onto a platter. Oh. Then he got into her nightclothes and waited in bed. Oh. Knock, knock. Come in, my dear. Hello, grandmother. I've brought you some bread and milk. Have something yourself, my dear. There is meat and wine in the pantry. Oh, you're kidding me. So the little girl ate what was offered. <gasps> and as she did... A little cat said, slut, flesh, and drink the blood of your grandmother. Then the wolf said, undress and get into bed with me. Where shall I put my apron? Throw it on the fire, said the wolf. You won't need it anymore. For each garment, her bodice, skirt, petticoat, and stockings, the girl asked, where shall I put my item? And each time the wolf answered, throw it on the fire. You won't need it anymore. When the girl got in bed, she said, oh, grandmother, how hairy you are. (laughs) It's to keep me warmer, my dear. Oh, grandmother, what big shoulders you have. 
It's for better carrying firewood, my dear. And that's not a cane either. Oh, grandmother, what long nails you have. It's for scratching myself better, my dear. Oh, grandmother, what big teeth you have. Uh It's for eating you better, my dear. And he ate her. (gasps) The end. You're not going to tell your daughter that story, are you? Please don't tell her that one. That was actually kind of scary. That was a little bit, the way you told that was a little scary. So, obviously, there's a few things missing from the story that we know. Yeah, the pigs. Huh? Didn't it's Little pigs? Red Riding Hood. Yeah, but it, doesn't she go to somewhere and then... No, you're conflating the, the three little pigs. Is the same wolf that blows the houses down, or no? This isn't the same wolf. I mean, that's a big bad wolf. Well, look here. Wolves are... Wolves represent, um, you know, a threat to pastoral society. Mm-hmm. Right. Wolves eat sheep. They eat cows. They eat horses. You know, they they're responsible for 10 human deaths a year. I believe that. Um, But uh, they are that, you know, so for for pastoral society, they they represent, Mm -hmm. you know, a threat. They're 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 the apex predator where most of these people live. They howl at the full moon. You know, they're going to kill some livestock. Yeah. I mean, the, the howling and all that stuff. None of that's relevant. It's more just like, all right, we're talking about people who are kind of de facto vegetarians. Mm-hmm. You know, the most of them, most of them can't afford meat except on like, um, can't afford to eat meat except on like the most, uh, you know, in special occasions or whatever. They might, they might get, you know, get to, to eat, like slaughter a lamb or something. But like, mm-hmm. by and large, they don't kill their sheep because they need the wool. They don't kill their cows because they need the milk. You know, I mean, they don't like they they need more calves to produce more milk, you know, all that stuff. They don't have hormones and stuff. So they have to just like keep reproducing the cows. So you might get to eat these things eventually, but you don't get to like, and there's no refrigeration, right? So, so, you know, if, if it's time you have to slaughter a cow, everybody gets to eat some meat for the day. And then that's the end of that. Um, you know, so you would slaughter a cow and the whole village would eat mm-hmm. and everybody would get a little bit of everybody get a little meat. And then, you know, you go back about your life, right? I mean, that's, that's what life is like for most people for most of the time. Yes. Basically vegetarians with a few exceptions, you know, a couple times with exceptions, a couple times a year. Mm-hmm. So, and wolves represent a threat to, you know, survival because, you know, if they slaughter a few, if, a, if wolves come in and kill a couple cows, you might not have enough milk to like, make cheese to survive because you know the reason you make cheese is it can survive without refrigeration Mm -hmm. like through the winter when you can't grow crops right like and you can't really like you have to be you have to be long-sighted about these things you can't slaughter your animals because unless you really need to because otherwise you won't have you know you won't have wool to make clothing you won't have uh milk in the spring you won't have the things you need to survive um so you know so again, like, you know, the, yes, some animals get slaughtered per- periodically, but it's not like, certainly nothing like today, right? I mean, obviously, most people are, well, look, the girl's bringing bread and milk to her grandmother, you know what I mean? Like, that is a, a pretty good example of what, what your cuisine was, right? Like, bread, milk, vegetables, yep. that, that's kind of what you got. Oof. But like, with Little Red Riding Hood, you know, there's clear morals in the story and all that, but like, and this is Little Red Riding Hood, and I'm going to get to that in a second, but like, What's the moral of this story? I mean, other than stay away from wolves, what's the moral here? It's not real clear, I don't think, what the moral is. Right? I mean, it's pretty ambiguous. Don't trust strangers. Don't trust strangers. Don't, you know. Yeah, but that's not 
really a like back then that's you need to trust strangers to survive like i mean because you live in because you because you're not atomized you live in a village you like live your you leave your kids home for days at a well, time the whole village raises the kids you know what i mean like it it's yep. that whole idea of like it takes a village is is real i mean it it was you know Damn we man. lived in communities and uh and that meant you know so so what do you like if you live in a community what do you do with the elderly population who's no longer strong enough to work in the fields well they take care of the children you, you know what i mean like they yep. Like and it's not just women. Like the the men do too. Like they take care of the kids. They're like the communal grandparents or great grandparents. They watch the children who are too young to work, and you know, and they pass on their wisdom and they pass on their stories, you know, while the while the able bodied adults do whatever labor needs to be done. And it wasn't like all toil and all that. I mean, um, I mean, honestly, in a lot of ways, uh, the peasants the peasants worked a lot less than than we do today. Um, as by, you know, on average and all that, but anyway, sure. But, but like, sure. my point is that like the moral of the story is not clear to us as 21st century observers. Like that's correct. Sure. It really isn't. So it's just a horror picture. Well, that's what it is to us. Right. But so this is the point. The point is in reading the story to try and get in the minds of these people. So here's one thing we know. And I think this is a really interesting story. And this is kind of why I wanted to tell it. Mm-hmm. We know changed over time not just because we know the kind of general little red riding hood story today but like we know that this story and others from the oral traditions of like rural pastoral france were eventually gathered up and published by a guy named charles perot there were others but he's the most famous and he did this in 1697 his first edition of a book called history un conte du temps Passé. That one. Yeah. Or Stories or Tales from Past Times. It's called Stories or Tales gotcha. from Past Times. He later revised it just within a, a year or two into something called Conte de ma mère loyal, which is Tales of My Mother Goose. <laughs> gotcha. Which I think should sound familiar to you. Yes. Top, top gun. Mother Goose. <laughs> Perot, uh, Perot, rather. Uh, probably learned these stories from his son's nurse, right? Like he was kind of an elite, but like, cause he wrote them down and published them, mm-hmm. but like his son's nurse was just like, you know, the common folk of the land. Right. And so she would tell these stories, to, you know, stories to his son. And so he sort of learned them that way and, you know, eventually wrote them down. Now these stories were carried from the villages of old France by uh, Huguenots. You know who the Huguenots were? Um, Yes, they did the ice cream, I think. Okay. They were French Protestants. Gotcha. Okay. And France was a Catholic country. In fact, at one point, the Pope lived in Avignon. So, I mean, it was a very, very Catholic country. And um, Huguenots uh, took these, carried these stories with them into what was by the, by the end of the 17th and into the 18th century, I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah. By the end of the 17th and into the 18th century, the dissolving homie, Holy Roman empire, uh, or today sort of Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would carry these stories with them as they fled because of the Huguenot persecutions under, um, King Louis or emperor Louis, uh, King Louis, the 14th and Louis, the 15th in the 17th and 18th centuries, you know, they like Louis, the 14th demanded all Huguenots convert to Catholicism. So a lot of them fled like something like 200,000 or something fled. Yep. 
because if they didn't convert, they'd be tortured into conversion. It was very much a French Inquisition style kind of thing. Incidentally, not related to this, Huguenots are um, the root for uh, Cajun culture. So it was French Huguenots in Canada from Acadia who uh, fled or who le- who uh, fled from Acadia in Canada down to Louisiana, the other French colony, mm-hmm. when the British took over. And so they end up in Louisiana, these Acadians, and these Acadians um, who are, again, French Huguenots, they, um, you know, they, they come down to Louisiana. They have a very different culture than the, the French that have been living in Louisiana. And, um, and Acadian becomes a corrupted term, becomes Cadian, becomes Cajun. Mm-hmm. And so the Cajun culture is uh, an extension of French. It's basically like created. It's French Huguenots mm. from Acadia. Anyway. Right. Yeah. Okay. So all these things, you know, they all have, they all come from something interesting. Anyway. Sorry. So, so anyway, so these Huguenots flee from France. They go to the Holy Roman Empire, which is kind of been dissolved after the peace of, peace of Westphalia uh, has become like uh, a bunch of independent German states. Although it still calls itself the Holy Roman Empire for a while, but it's not really an empire. It's really like uh, a bunch of like principalities, like mm-hmm. as in run by princes mm-hmm. and uh, or or dukies, you know, du- like these duchies the that dukes, are run by dukes. Duke yeah, Royal, it's baby. kind of, you know. Yes, yeah, so you have these like these small states that are all run, and eventually Prussia becomes the most powerful. But anyway, uh, but before all that, it doesn't matter. None of that's relevant. Um, but the stories that these Huguenots brought with them from France eventually found their way to a woman named Jeanette Hassenflug about a hundred years or so later. Now, she learned the stories from her French Huguenot mother, but her French Huguenot mother no longer just told the stories from memory. She read them from books like Perot's. Now, Hassenflug then shared the story of the, uh, the little girl and the wolf and Puss in Boots and Bluebeard. <laughs> That's one of my favorites, Puss in Boots. And others. She shared those stories with her friends and neighbors, the brothers Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm. Oh, yeah, I remember them. The Brothers Grimm. The Brothers Grimm. So they're in Germany near the Black Forest, and the Grimm brothers decide to write these stories down. That but they make in, some changes along the way. Um, uh, that was in um, what, uh, Tangled, the, the movie. Um, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my okay. favorite ones. They had The Brothers Grimm was in that. It was good. So somewhere along the way between these early stories and then Perot writing them down and Hassenflug sharing them with the brothers Grimm somewhere along that way, the story got itself a happy ending. It got a red riding hood. That was not in the original version. That's right. A hunter was added to come and kill the wolf. And actually, I I don't remember the original. Huh? I don't really remember the full story. So, in the story that has come down to us, the story that sort of gets translated to English comes from the Brothers Grimm. Right. And, and first off, the little girl that goes to visit her grandmother through the wood, over the river and through the woods, there's a couple of key elements that are not in the original. One is her mother sends her with a basket of, fu- of food. It's no longer bread and milk. It's now a basket of food. Mm-hmm. And her mother tells her, do not stray off the path. You have to take the path over the river through the woods to grandmother's house. Mm-hmm. Don't stray off the path. 
So, okay, so we're laying out a moral lesson right from the get-go, right? Yep. Because, of course, and she's wearing her little red riding hood, right, which is quite possibly a symbol of virginity. It's hard to say, but there's the story is very sexual, so it's quite possible that they decided to make it about virginity, which okay. clearly the first story is not. I mean, this girl does like a strip tease for the wolf. I mean, my God. <laughs> You know, thinking it's her grandmother, which is itself like a whole thing. It's very weird. But like, she also couldn't possibly think it's her grandmother. You know what I mean? Like, there's like a wolf would never. You know what I mean? There's a lot of right, stuff that's right. like, yeah. So okay, but again, it's 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 a. That's the point. Trying to get into these people's heads is challenging, and it's a it's an interesting exercise. Mm. Anyway, but she gets a little red. She gets a red riding hood. She's told not to stray off the path, which she does, which is how. She encounters the wolf in the first place because she strays off the path. Correct. So it's a morality tale about disobedience. Uh-huh. And uh, while the wolf is about to eat her in the story that gets that comes out, uh, a hunter who most people sort of speculate is like a a stand in for her father, uh-huh. you know, patriarchal authority or whatever. Her father comes and kills the wolf. And then actually in the story from the Brothers Grimm, something that gets dropped later on after they kill the wolf, they drop two stones in his stomach. Because he cuts, oh, sorry, the wolf eats the grandma and the and Riding Hood, uh-huh. but the hunter cuts the wolf's belly open and frees them, and then puts two stones in the wolf's place, which was symbolic of the time for being sterilized. Gotcha. So I mean, so again, they're they're like they're they're they just weren't digested yet. Yeah, they're they're dealing with the the sexuality of the story, but they're doing it in a very weird way that is fundamentally different from the original. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's how the story changes. So all of that is just to say, and you know, we can talk about Bluebeard for a second, but like in, in a minute, but like, what are we to make of that original story? Like, uh, or, or here's another one. Like, okay. So again, we have this idea of like how people thought and behaved or whatever. But these stories stand as kind of outliers to a lot of our assumptions. So like, here's one in an early version of sleeping beauty, for example, mm-hmm. the prince who comes to kiss her and wake her up. Mm-hmm. He's already married, mm. but he rapes Sleeping Beauty while she's asleep and impregnates her. She, in fact, bears him several children while never waking up. You're kidding. She eventually wakes up when one of the infants nursing bites her, and that's what wakes her up. That's a little bit different. The story goes on to describe the prince's mother-in-law as an ogress oh that attempts to eat his illegitimate children. Like, yeah. But again, like so completely different than the story that comes down in an early version of, of Cinderella from like oral history. Uh, the Disney princess becomes a domestic servant, mm-hmm. as we know from the movie and the story. Right. But she does so because she's trying to avoid being forced by her father to marry him. Mm-hmm. In the early uh, French version of Hansel and Gretel, oh. which seems like a German story, but it is a French story first. The hero tricks an ogre, not a witch, into slitting the throats of his own children instead of Hansel and Gretel, right? Um, so, again, they're not baking them into cookies or whatever, they, and they, the kids don't trick the witch. Sure. Uh, instead, it's an ogre who is going to bleed them out um, gotcha. in order to eat them, but he's tricked into killing his own children. In one of my favorite stories, mm-hmm. La Belle et la Monstre, or, you know, Beauty and the Beast. Ooh. Uh, that is a story about a husband who eats a succession of brides in the wedding bed <laughs> in what is probably the nastiest of these French fairy tales. 
It's called, it, there's no real good English translation. I'll tell you what it means in a second. And I'm going to butcher this like I butcher all the other French. But um, this is not one that really gets translated into English. But uh, it's called Mamere Maatue Mompere Maamange. Which means roughly uh, the, they killed the mother and then killed the father. So, so I mean, it's not like, like, obviously, that's not what you would never title a story. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Um, he killed he killed his mother and then his father. Like that's not a story title. But anyway, in this story, it's actually kind of wild because the story actually involves the mother chopping up her son into a casserole made with potatoes and onions, and then she has her daughter serve the casserole to the father. <laughs> so, what should we make of all these stories? Right, like we have rape and incest, and we have cannibalism. And like all of the, and we have the, like the, the raw sort of sexuality of that little red riding hood, riding hood story in the beginning. Like, what do we make of these stories? Like, what should we think of the, pe- the French pe- peasants? Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to le- ask you about that. So I think this, these fairy tales fit the spooky season really nicely. Oh, oh yeah. So, I mean, I don't really have a conclusion. I just, I'm, I find it interesting. Yeah, I'm literally asking you. Like, what do you think? Like I said, this is free freewheeling. This is going to take me forever to edit. Well, first of all, I'm very glad they cleaned up all these stories because our kids would be terrified. They'd be needing uh, therapy at a very young age. Uh, Well, but again, that's because we're in a different culture. So sure they would. But like those kids at that time might not necessarily have. Well, I think in, in a lot of ways it was, you know, warnings to those kids uh, to listen to your parents. You know, obviously, do what they tell you. Um, Don't listen to talking wolves. You know, um, basic life lessons that they, I guess, in those times, they they scared the shit out of their kids. Uh, That's how he taught them. Yeah, I mean, I I, I get what you're saying. Maybe, maybe. But I have some, some, there are some things about that that I find a little bit unsatisfying in that when these things get translated later on, the people who do translations and who change them, you know, like the Brothers Grimm and then later English translations, things like that, they feel compelled to add those morality tales into the story. They feel compelled to add elements that say things like, like the, there tells uh, the little girl not to stray off the path. Mm-hmm. That's not in the original. Mm-hmm. So, like, they're looking at this and going, I don't really understand. Maybe there should be a moral. Let's make one. Correct. So they're creating those morals out like that. They're adding them to the stories in places they didn't exist. So that's what makes them, I think, to me, so intriguing. Like they're not morality tales, not in the way we understand them today. So, you know, I mean, they, they're certainly some of them are cautionary. No question. But like they're not really they don't seem to be like they don't seem to be hiding behind symbolism for one thing. Right. You know, what I mean, like like, again, Little Red Riding Hood, the Red Riding Hood seems to me it would be a pretty clear symbol of virginity. Okay. You know what I mean? Like that seems like a pretty clear metaphor for, for virginity. Yep. And, and so, okay, fine. I, I get that. You get the little young virginal girl. And so the whole thing, but that changes the whole dynamic of the thing. The original story is very much about, I mean, very much about cannibalism and sexuality. Yeah. But like she willingly like takes each part of her clothing off and throws it in the fire. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's a, there's something about, it's it's not about it's not a morality tale, but it's also like we can't assume like I mean we we know like French peasants wouldn't have been like 
like that's not behavior that you engage in either. You know what I mean? Like sure, that's not sure, sure. So so the way they view the world is so very different. I mean, I guess that's the thing that's so interesting. It's like the way they view the world is so very different. Um oh, yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? Like that they got something from this that it's like it's really almost impossible for us to like wrap our brains around. So like there's this huge difference too between German tales like that were that took place around the Black Forest and the older French stories that took place in villages and meadows. And for one thing, one character, one trope, the ogres, almost always appear in, in French stories in the role of uh, like the burger head of household, uh, what they call the la bourgeois de la maison, which mm-hmm. is where we get the word bourgeoisie, right? The, the kind of uh, landlord, like the local landlord. Yep. What's interesting is these are people who like exploit the labor of others for personal gain. And in German tales, ogres are treated as kind of monsters. In French tales, they're boorish and they're fat and they have fat boorish wives and they snore really loud and they're annoying and stuff. But generally speaking, they're like good family men. Uh, the, these ogres are like generally, you know, kind of good family. They, they might do a thing that's monstrous to a character, but yep. in the name of like feeding their family. So there's something interesting about that. German tales tend to be more like more about terror and fantasy. Whereas the French tend to be more about sort of humor and domesticity, even if the humor is bawdy, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then one other thing, like folk tales tend to be the norm in France, whereas in England, a lot of these same stories or similar stories get like converted into kind of rhyming songs in like the mother goose stories that come down to us in, you know, um, in like the English speaking world. Right. So, okay. So I just want to like, like point out just a couple things really quick. So, Mm-hmm. In um uh, fair, uh English like rhyming tales, some of the famous ones, like for example, Humpty Dumpty mm-hmm. was a stand-in for Richard the <laughs> Third. Uh Curly Locks, which is one you probably don't know, was a stand-in for Charles the Second. Wee Willie Winky was William the Third, Little Miss Muffet was Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, and the spider that sat down beside her was John Knox. You should look up that story I like you feel that. Like it. Mary Queen of yeah. Scots and John Knox. So there was a it was a way to uh critique the royalty without exactly doing so. Yes. Uh there's also some stuff we can kind of learn about like what it was like to to live like as a poor peasant in in these places. So like there was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children she didn't know what to do. Like like peasants everywhere she fed them brought. <laughs> she would struggled to figure out what to do yep. with them, right? She um she couldn't even provide them any bread because she had so many and was so poor. And there's no, there's no husband around, right? There's no father. So she's alone, like struggling. So she vented her despair by like whipping the kids. Um, and then like, you know, diet, like described in Mother Goose is generally pretty bad. Like peas, porridge, hot mm. peas, porridge, cold peas, porridge nine in the pot, old. nine days old. Could you imagine? I mean, that sounds awful, right? <laughs> I only eat leftover Chinese. I wouldn't eat that. Are you kidding me? Yeah, right. Um, there's one that's like, with, yeah, with no refrigeration. There's one that talks about clothing that like tells you something about like, you know, what it was like. When I was a little girl, about seven years old, I hadn't got a petticoat to keep me from the cold, right? Um, oh, yeah. Anyway, there, like there's all this stuff that's, that's wild, right? Um, but again, using this stuff to get a sense of like what it was like to be a regular person. Um, Poverty kind of drove a lot of Mother Goose characters into 
beggary and theft, like begging and thieving. Um, so here's one. Christmas Day is coming. The geese are getting fat. Won't you please put a penny in the old man's hat? <laughs> I love it. Um, begging, you know, yeah, begging, yeah. right? Um, or one that like like or preying on defenseless children. There came a proud beggar and he said and said he would have her. He stole my little moppet, which is a doll away. Or uh or preying on their like fellow paupers. Um there was a man and he had naught, that means he had nothing. Yep. And robbers came to rob him. He crept up to the chimney top, and then he thought they had him. Right? Like so again, like so a couple of poor people come to rob a poor guy, he has to climb up climb up to the top of a chimney. Yep. Right. So I mean, life kind of sucks. Um, the English, though, have one thing that's really unique from the, the the French. They, the mother goose tales in England, create a universe in which the monsters, the people that are the cause of their misery. Mm-hmm. Right. Again. So keep in mind, these are all metaphors, right? Like the monsters in these people's lives are the rich people. They're the they're the elites that control society that keep them immiserated. Mm-hmm. The ones that that. Take, you know, that when they grow, they work to grow their crops that come in and take 40% of them. Right. You know what I mean? They're the ones who like, they are the, the, and do no work. They do no work and reap all the benefit, but their, their argument is, yeah, but we invested in the land. We took all the risk. Yes. We risked it by buying the land. Um, again, the, the same argument today, but we took all the risk. <laughs> you make all the, you do all the work. We take all the risk, but in English stories, you could at least sometimes, occasionally, kill the monster, as in the story of, like, for example, something called Jack the Giant Killer. Oh, I love that movie. That's what? my favorite one. Me and my, me and my daughter watched that constantly. I've seen that movie about seven times. Fantastic film. Once upon a time, a very good time it was, when pigs were swine and dogs ate lime and monkeys chewed tobacco, when houses were thatched with pancakes Streets paved with plum puddings and roasted pigs ran up and down the streets with knives and forks in their backs, crying, come and eat me. That was a good time for travelers. I love it. That's from Jack the Giant Killer. Because the giant then comes, and when the giant comes, he ruins all that. He takes away all the good times. And now the people are immiserated and suffering. And so once they're immiserated and suffering, you know, in numbskull fashion, Jack trades the family cow for a few beans. But of course, he climbs his way to riches with the help of, uh, you know, some unobtainium, right? Magic props, a fantastic beanstalk, a hen that lays golden eggs, a talking harp, right? He is the tale of like simple Simon, except, you know, he sort of right. lucks his way into doing good, right? And like, I think, you know, we don't think about these stories. I like to bring them up because they kind of tell us something pretty interesting. All right. I have, I have um, like two more really quick things, mm-hmm. quick things I want to do because I think you're going to enjoy them. All right. And I'm going to have to read, I'm going to read a bit of a, a, a chunk here for you. And this is about, um, I want to compare the way Italian, French, and the English versions of stories go. Okay. I did this just for you, the Italian. Oh, good. You can kind of observe the way the, the flavor changes once the Italians come in. See what I did there? I did a thing about flavor because I'm doing Italian. I like it. Um, if you talk about a story like uh, where uh, it deals with something like the rescue of princesses from an enchanted underworld, there are a lot of stories like this, right? Um, the English hero is a guy named Jack. The French is a guy named Jean, right? 
Jack goes, frees his princesses by following the instructions of a dwarf. He descends into a pit. He runs after a magic ball. He um, slays a, a, a succession of giants in copper, gold, and silver palaces. Mm-hmm. The French hero, Jean, has to contend with uh, more treacherous surroundings. His fellow travelers abandon him to the devil in a haunted house. And then he cuts the, he has to cut the rope when he tries to haul himself out of the pit after he delivers the princesses, right? The Italian hero is a, uh, the Italian hero is a palace baker who's run out of town for flirting with the king's daughter. He follows the same path, uh, through the same dangers, but he does it in a spirit of like, uh, buffoonery. Like it's clownish. Right. It's not just about bravery, but he's also like he clowns his way through these same challenges. He goes through all the same challenges that both the English and French go through, but he does it like mocking them all the way, making a joke out of it. And then there's still a bit of bravado, but I think there's something interesting about that. Like that when the Italians get the story, they change it so that like it's all jokey jokey. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know what I mean? Um, the French are very depressing. Like the, Dude has to cut his rope and plummet because after he yes, saves the princess. Yes, that is sad. You know, the English guy, uh, Jack, you know, he he has to go through a series of tests that all revolve around money, the gold palace, the silver palace, and the copper palace. But then he escapes and it's all any any, you know, any it's great. It's a win. Um, I think there's something very interesting about the three, the way those three stories come out, like that there's something interesting about the difference between them. Anyway, um, let's see, hold on. Sorry. So uh, the Italian hero, um, the uh, let's see, uh, in his case, the devil comes down the chimney of the haunted house in a magic ball, tries to trip him up by uh, bouncing on his between his feet. But the baker stands on a chair and then on a table and finally on a chair on the table while he plucks a chicken as this diabolical ball pounds helplessly around him, trying to smash him. So unable to overcome the circus act, the devil steps out of the ball and offers to help prepare the meal that the baker is doing. He's plucking a chicken. The baker asks the devil to hold the firewood, and while he holds the firewood, the baker chops off the devil's head. So he uses a a similar trick in the underground pit to behead a sorcerer um, who has uh, abducted the princesses. So the baker, like, again, it's sort of clownishness, right? He piles trick on trick. He's a trickster. And then he finally wins his true love, like, in the underworld. Um, it's like the plot is exactly the same as the English and French, but like he's doing this like weird comedy where like, again, if you can picture this being played out, the devil is in this diabolical evil ball that he's trying to crush the baker yep. with. So the baker just like, he's like outsmarts him by like climbing up on a chair. So the ball bounces higher. So he climbs up on a table. So the ball bounces higher. So he stands on a chair on the table. I mean, that's, you know, that's comedy. That's clownish shit. You yep. know what I mean? In the Italian Little Red Riding Hood, for example, um, Little Red Riding Hood bamboozles the wolf by tossing him a cake full of nails. Um, but later, like uh, just like in the French French tales, he tricks her into eating her, her grandmother, and then he eats her himself. But um, but still, there's that moment where she's able to like fool him with her cleverness, right? So I think again, it tells something about like Italian folk that they're like they they insert these cleverness narratives into these stories as they turn them their own way in the Italian story about puss in boots. Um, it's like the French, but it's different than the Germanies. Uh, the, the puss in boots is actually a Fox pretending to be a cat 
who plays on the vanity and gullibility of people around him in order to gain great rich riches and a castle and a princess for his uh for his master to yep. wed. Yep. Right? Which is sort of like the um sort of like the French version, um, except for the uh well it's it's actually really similar to the, the French yep. version. Except in the French version, uh Puss is the inheritance of the youngest son, but it turns out to be the best inheritance. Anyway, here's one more thing. So the story of Bluebeard, you said it's one of your favorites. Um, the story of, um, uh, nah, what was it? One of my favorites was Jack, yeah, the beanstalk. Jack and sure. the giant beanstalk. That was. Oh, I mentioned my... Bluebeard earlier, and I thought you got excited about Bluebeard. I do like Bluebeard, but Jack and the giant slayer, that's the movie I just watched, and it was incredible. Um and uh, Bluebeard, I don't know too much about Bluebeard. He was the pirate, right? Are you thinking of Blackbeard? That's Blackbeard. Bluebeard was his cousin. What did he do? Not his cousin. Okay. Blackbeard was a real guy, Edward Teach. Okay. Uh, Bluebeard, um, in the original story, and all the stories sort of have similar elements. The story of Bluebeard is uh, he's a, a serial wife killer, basically. So the story of Bluebeard goes like this. So uh, Bluebeard gets married, and he tells his new wife that she's not allowed to go through a secret door. There's just, there's a, a secret door, a secret room, and she is forbidden from entering that room. It's the only thing she's not allowed to go into in the entire house. Mm-hmm. So then Bluebeard, of course, goes out you know, to do business for some long extended period. And the key is just hanging there, right? Um, so she can, go, she can go in. The key is right there. The temptation is there. And of course, she, you know, she can't resist and she opens the door when she opens the door she finds bluebeard's previous six wives are all the corpses are all in there there's blood all over the floor and you know she sees them all in there just like kept in the closet and of course she panics she drops the key in in a pool of blood and shuts the door behind her but she can never get all the blood off the key Mm -hmm. she tries and tries and tries but it won't come off so when bluebeard comes back from his trip he is by looking at he's able to see on the key that she broke the rule, so he murders her and throws her into the room. Okay. Got it. In the English or the German version, Bluebeard does something with a flower in the door so that he's able to like detect that she opened the door. Okay. Uh, okay um, but, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh so it's not about the blood on the key. Um but and then the closet is not actually just like a closet or the a room or whatever. It's actually like hell. So, um, he, you know, it's like the underworld or whatever. So like, it's the same kind of story, but he tricks her in a slightly different way or whatever. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. in the Italian version, Bluebeard is, is basically a devil who lures a succession of peasant women into hell, hiring by hiring them to do his laundry. And then he like tempts them with the same usual device of the key and the forbidden door, right? Gotcha. The door leads to hell. So when they try it, Flames leap out and like, um, and they, oh, they send a flower in this case that, that he puts in their hair. So as soon as they try the door, the flames leap out and singe the flower. And so that's how he'll know. Gotcha. Um, so once he finds that the girls have, have broken this taboo, he throws them into the flames of hell. Okay. So one after the other, his wives get tossed in or these girls get tossed in. They're not wives until he comes to Lucia. Lucia agrees to work for him after her older sisters have all disappeared. She also opens the forbidden door, but she only cracks it just a little in order to glimpse to see what's behind it. She suspects a trap. Mm 
and she sees her sisters are in the flames, right? But because she's had the foresight to take her flower out of her hair and leave it in a safe place, the devil can't condemn her for disobedience because her flower never gets singed. Mm -hmm. So instead, she ends up acquiring power over him because she's the only one that doesn't break the taboo. So he kind of gives in to her, her desires a bit. And after a while, she, he grants her one wish and she asks him to carry, to help, uh, to carry some laundry bags back to her mama so that, um, she can have help coping with the, the gigantic backlog of filthy washing that, you know, that has accumulated. She's like, can you please take some of this laundry to my mom so she can help me? Right. Like it's too much for me to handle. Got it. She also tells him that he has to carry the bags the whole way. Must be strong enough to make the whole trip without ever putting the bags down. Okay. Yeah. So he agrees. That's his promise to her. Okay. So okay. Now Lucia tells him she has a magical power. She can see great distances, so she'll be able to see all the way to her mother's house, whether or not Bluebeard follows through with the not putting them down, the bags down. Gotcha. So anyway. Meanwhile, the, the devil agrees, and meanwhile, she manages to rescue her sisters from the hellfire, and she smuggles them into the laundry bags. Oh, boy. <laughs> so the devil lugs these bags all the way to her mother's house, which contain actually her sisters. And every time he stops and starts to set them down, the sisters in unison all yell, I see you, I see you, you know, uh -huh. like as if they're her sister. And so he's like, oh, God, she can see me. So he picks them back up and carries them the rest of the way, right? So she manages to escape Bluebeard herself doing the same thing. She packs herself in a laundry bag and leaves it outside for him to pick up and take to her mother. So like he keeps making the trip and eventually, you know, they all get returned home. I got you. So she's able to like, so again, so in the Italian version, I mean, this is wild, right? Like the same story, but like in the Italian version, <laughs> Lucia like tricks the trickster and like makes him carry them all back home, <laughs> like taking them back to where they're safe. <laughs> I mean, my point of this is just like I think it's really fascinating how these stories like change from place to place and you know if we're dealing with like spookiness these stories are all like wild uh -huh. I mean if you get to the basic plot a lot of these stories are like the basic plot of like a lot of the stories we still tell you know what I mean we still oh, like yeah, sure. we change a lot of the details obviously but like the, the husband that murders his wife or vice versa the the uh, the wife that manages to like trick her husband into doing a thing that he doesn't really want to do. I mean, forget about wife, husband, the idea of like conning a person into doing a thing that they don't want to do by like outsmarting them through your cleverness. And part of your cleverness is like, you know, is luring them into your trust, yep. even, even though you don't deserve it. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like all of these tropes are just like, they're ancient tropes. And we just can't like keep seeing the stories over and over and over. I think it's wild. In the German version, by the way, Bluebeard is like a mysterious wizard <laughs> who like carries the girls off to like a castle in a forest. And uh, I mean, it's like a whole, a whole different thing. I mean, um, he takes them into, he takes the girls into like a chamber of horrors and the whole story, rather than being about like violating a taboo, right? You're not allowed to go into this room, right? You violate this taboo. And then there's a punishment for violating a taboo. Which again, I mean, I think there is a moral there that you can get from if you violate the taboo, you suffer these grave consequences. That's a morality tale that you can apply to all sorts of things in, in society. Right. In the German version, it's a wizard 
and like he takes him into this like chamber of horrors and like tortures and murders each ones in like the most gruesome way. Um, I have a little quote uh, here where it's like he threw her down, dragged her along by her hair, cut her head off on the block, hewed her in pieces so that her blood ran on the ground. Then he threw her into the basin with the rest. And like the heroine escapes the, that fate by like uh, acquiring some sort of magic power over the wizard and holding on to her key instead of like, you know, violating the taboo and brings her sisters back to life mm-hmm. by reassembling them, uh, like reassembling their corpses. And then she hides in a basket, covers it with gold and orders the wizard to carry it to her parents. Cause she has this new magic power. She prepares for a wedding that will, re- will unite her with the wizard. She dresses in a, dresses a skull in bridal in like a bridal gown with flowers. And she sets it in the window so that he like thinks she's there when he carries her back in the basket. So again, like a lot of the same elements are there, but like, it's so completely different and so much darker. Like the wizard, like somehow being thrown into the fires of hell is less dark than what the wizard does. You know what I mean? <laughs> like the Germans exactly. are just like, yeah, crazy. Anyway, this isn't about like preaching or like drawing any morals. The French folk tales uh, seem to like demonstrate little more than like that. The world is harsh and dangerous. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, most of these stories weren't like even necessarily directed toward children, but like they would be told with children present. They do still tend to be like uh-huh. cautionary tales. Like they all like put up kind right. of warning signs, you know, like stop danger. You know, the road is out bridge down, you know, whatever <laughs> like, go slow, slow down, <laughs> speed bump ahead, whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, yep. <laughs> so I think it's kind of wild. They, they, but they also show, I think an interesting thing. A lot of the French stories like to show that like generosity, honesty, courage, they all like maybe win some rewards. However, you end up doomed. They don't like inspire a lot of yeah. confidence. Like the English, the English versions like are so explicit in like the honesty and courage and all this stuff. Like we'll, we'll like turn your whole life around. Right. Right. I mean, that's the stuff that you and I kind of grew up with was like the, these morality tales where it's like, well, if you just do the right thing, you'll be rewarded. In Everything will work out. Yes. Everything will yes. work out. The French, but, but like, but that's not true. Of course it's not true. Yeah. Yeah, it's not real. The French stories are like, hey, honesty and generosity, like these things are good. And like sometimes they reap they reap some small rewards. However, you know, like they shouldn't inspire a whole lot of confidence that like things are really going to be like way better. Like there's not a lot of effectiveness, like loving your enemies or like um, you know, turning the other cheek don't exactly like work out well for most of the 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 heroes and heroines in French folk stories, right? <laughs> right. And I think that's kind of interesting because it's like, in some ways, I guess the I guess the the point of all this is that in some ways, I kind of like these stories because on some level they kind of show that the old folk tales mm-hmm. are honest. Life is hard. <laughs> there is struggle. Yeah. Like sometimes, you know, sometimes a small bad decision can lead to pretty brutal outcomes. Yep. And you should still be a good person. You should still do good things. You might get a little reward. However, it's not going to like, you know, it's not going to be a rags to riches story for you. Probably <laughs> like life will continue to be struggle, even when you're a good person. And like, it's probably good to know that. Yeah. That like that, that rather than looking for some sort of magic bullet, maybe you're better off trying to find some uh, real and meaningful way to improve your life. Yep. That, that isn't, well, if you just, you know, do all the right things. You know, you'll uh, you'll you'll wind up uh, in a good position. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. 
Hey, Unbalanced listeners, thanks so much. If you made it this far, good God, I'm sorry. What a rambling mess that was. Uh, Happy Halloween. I'm recording this on October 31st. We will be back in just a few days with part three of the Pox Upon Your House series. Uh, I'm sorry for the delay. We had some unforeseen uh, difficulties. But uh, in the meantime, feel free to contact us at Views Unbalanced on Twitter or email us at unbalancedviews at gmail. And we'll be talking to you very, very soon. Thank you so much. Please spread the word if you like what we're doing.